Brief apology here. The sound quality for this episode, and maybe a few future ones, isn't as good as I would like. During the original recording, my microphone apparently picked up everything I was saying more softly than usual, so I had to manually amplify my volume in places. And in addition, I'm still working at getting good, consistent sound quality at the new apartment. That said, let's get on with the show. These are the chronicles of the journey we take together. The journey of Steamheart, and one we invite you to take with us through Through the the wind. wind door. Sarah, are you all set up? 20 seconds. 20 seconds? Oh my gosh. Well, uh, please um, feel free to be relaxed, enjoy yourself, and enjoy this live recording session of Through the Window. We've got a packed crowd tonight, uh, ladies and gentlemen. I think that's going to be the opening. I don't think like I could do my normal opener from here, <laughs> but why would I? This is going to be brilliant. All right. I will say that, I mean, and we'll talk more about this as we get into it, but as I was preparing the outline for this discussion on chapters 30 through 32, I was like, oh, yeah, okay, we've gotten to this part of the story now. We're going to be talking about some heavy things today, or within a couple of recordings, depending on how long it takes us to cover all the talking points, but... This is kind of like the beginning of the end for Mm. the story of Steamheart, because now we're getting to the really serious shit. And it's not Mm -hmm. enough to say this is potentially the darkest part of the story, because it's not. And we don't know it. Mm. Which is, uh, you know, a hard thing to tell to the people who are reading along with us. But it's unfortunately a true thing for us to impart to you. So buckle in is a bit too, like, making too light of it. But I would say just kind of get ready Mm -hmm. for it. It is not going to be without hope. It is Mm -hmm. just going to lay some hard moments at your feet. Yeah, exactly. And honestly, that's kind of appropriate because we also know that the pieces of media that we keep bringing back up in regards to Steamheart. So many jars. So many jars. Firefly. Avatar. The other thing I was thinking of was Mass Effect 2. Mm-hmm. Lord of the Rings. The Mass Effect series in general. They all have their serious dark moments. In addition to the fun stuff we have along the way and mm. the very heavy character stuff that we have along the way, we're into like deep plot territory now and the events that will change everything and everyone beginning in these chapters. Mm. Before we uh, advance into the full conversation, I would just like to note to the audience that if at any point today I sound a little bit different to how I usually sound, or if I sound a little bit peculiar, 
well you've had two years to get adjusted to that so you know get used to it but no if i sound as if i am bunged up or coming through on the other end of the cold it's because i am and so i'm feeling a little bit better today thank you for your concern which i will presume that you were expressing just then but yeah all in all i'm doing okay you sound fine but mm. I, I, now that you mention it i think i can i can detect a little bit of that but yeah i think i mean obviously let me know if at any point uh you need to stop because you're you're coming to the end of your rope as always but i'm sure that your pumpkin time might be higher if you're coming back from uh okay something just dropped somewhere exciting did you mm. i i think i heard something if you genuinely need to see to that that's uh totally no, no, okay. no. It, my my parents are home Mm -hmm. which means that they are doing things upstairs and the microphone can be a little spotty at times about what it picks up and what it doesn't as far as background stuff is concerned. That's totally uh, cool. Uh, speaking of which, Sarah, have you had the ketchup that you need to? Ah, nice. Because I was thinking that that would be a hilariously timed, like sort of squidging of a uh, ketchup bottle there. But uh, nice. Don't, don't you worry. It's all, it's all atmospheric. We are... Here we're sitting around the window on top steam heart. It's I always think that the location of where we record these things changes per book. It's always sort of on the other end of a window. It's just sort of where that is is different per story. Oh god, now I just have this mental image of Gordus and Loderbot sitting atop that car in Tales of the Borderlands. <laughs> Yeah, I feel like we made that comparison once before. Uh, well, we, did, we did mention it, I think, in regards to when we were talking about montages. Yes. That yeah. montage from episode three came up. Mm -hmm. So here we are in terms of the actual expressed story segments. It's not the final part of mm -hmm. Steamheart, but this is the last quarter of it in terms of number of chapters remaining these three chapters are the final pieces of part three. Part mm. four is technically the final quarter, if we're right. honest. But like yeah. I said, these are the chapters that will lead us into whatever the turning point, which is what part four is called, has in store for us. Mm. Tipping point, isn't it? Um, a tipping point, yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. Functionally the same thing, but in this instance... There's a great deal of difference between the two. So, let's get into it. Yeah, exactly. When I first started writing the outline, I had utterly forgotten that Chapter 30 began with another interview. Raven with his box tube discussing stuff with Abigail. Like, I, I'm sure I remembered that the two of them had this conversation, but I didn't remember where and when. Therefore, listening to the two of them talk, was sort of intriguing emotionally. It really puts into perspective just how far all of them have come together. A short while ago, you and I were discussing how Raven was on the verge of emotional and mental collapse, and how Lucy was the name that James and Abby could never bring up. This conversation brings some things into focus, clarifying that indeed, Raven knows the whole of Lucy's story now, but more than just Abby being willing to examine those old feelings, 
Raven himself is willing to be vulnerable and discuss his wife, Nadine. That feels huge. And one wonders if the experience of learning about Hrau and Miguel changed something in the old journalist, though what has changed has yet to be seen. The conversation between Abby and Raven at this stage in the journey is going to lay some pretty raw personal truths out. It's something you would come to expect from, you know, most to any two travel companions or teammates at this point in the narrative after so much time on the road together. But we know how both Raven and Abby do ask hard-hitting questions of the people around them. And while there's a lot that they will be forward about regarding themselves, there's also some parts at the core that, you know, they get a little bit barbed about. Mm. But it feels feasible for the two to just be honest with themselves and the person asking the questions because breaking down surface level insincerity and going beyond what people display to the world was the defining tone of their very first encounter at the ball. Abigail is getting herself ready to exercise some poorly trained social flattery and etiquette and stuff like that. And Raven is pretty much immediately saying, yeah, we're not doing that. From that moment on, we established that they can say something real and vulnerable, especially at this point, because they each know where the other person is coming from. They've become aware of the parts of their past that they regret and still feel some sort of unresolved trauma over. And they're not coming from it from a place of judgment. It's more of an obligation to have certain truths be spoken. I'm glad that you brought up the April ball, Mm. because that puts into perspective how their conversation on the balcony and this conversation now are like good points of contrast, a good dichotomy Mm. to work off of in terms of what has changed in these two people's relationships to each other, and therefore Mm. the very different tone in some ways in terms of what Abigail can ask of Raven and how he will respond to that. During that first conversation, Raven was very blunt and aggressive. Not in a hostile way, but he was clearly trying to provoke Abigail and see how she responded to that, much like he did with Arlington himself. He wanted to get a better sense of Abby, while in the meantime being far more in control of his own vulnerabilities. If you'll pardon me for giving into my own patterns for a moment, put a penny in the jar, it makes me think of a conversation between Toby Ziegler and Will Bailey back when they first met in Season 4. Toby is opinionated about what he thinks are Will's weaknesses regarding speechwriting, and Will politely but firmly fires back, pointing out Toby's own blind spots. Abigail isn't nearly so pointed here, as she wants to get along with someone that she is, in her own words, going to be trapped on a voyage with. But at the end of the day, she holds her ground without necessarily getting Raven to be vulnerable himself in that moment. Mm. And now, the two of them, as you say, their vulnerabilities have been laid bare, even though Abigail wasn't necessarily part of that. The big confrontation happened between Raven and James. But clearly, what was revealed was passed on to Abigail, as you would kind of expect, considering the closeness of the two of them. 
and the fact mm-hmm. that James might need to externalize this stuff himself. I, I, it's, it's hard to know exactly how much the entire group knows about everything, but it's clear that Abigail knows, and that's why she's able to push back and say, mm-hmm. what about you, huh? And Raven's like, yeah, okay, you got me. Let's talk mm-hmm. about this. Yeah. We've seen that Abigail does the same thing. Mm-hmm. She doesn't even necessarily have a journalistic reason for it. She will probe other people, and it does kind of needle at them. You, mm-hmm. We saw this with Butler when they were going out hunting together. So these two doing it with each other, you could see that as kind of like sparking off the very worst in each other. But I think it actually they kind of understand exactly where they're coming from because they're coming from the same place. They're coming at it from this perspective of just, this is something that should be asked of. And there's a concept which, too, if you'll, uh, Greg, just reach up onto the shelf and grab that one particular jar labeled Mass Effect 2. Uh, Mm -hmm. Thank you. Okay. And let's put a credit there. There's a conversation in that where Morden talks about Salarian culture and how there's these two forms of secrets or how Salarians keep secrets from one another. There's the first form, which is something where there's actually this sort of almost an encouragement for fellow Salarians to kind of investigate and discover and un- well, unearth is probably the wrong word to use in a sci-fi context, but nevertheless, to unearth these hidden truths about things, wh- whatever the sort of social context of that is. And it's because there's this understanding that there is something of value in the pursuit of shared and understood truths, even if there is an initial hiding of it from their fellow Solarians. And then there are other ones which are like deeper ones which people understand actually this is something that should remain unspoken or something like that. I think it's been a long while, so the nature of that second truth is a bit foggy to me, but I always remember that first one which is a fascinating concept that a species can develop this culture where they will still have the concept of secrets or things that they don't necessarily immediately and openly share, but they understand that other people should kind of probe and draw that out in some way. And I think that that's a similar line of thought and philosophy that Abigail and Raven are operating on a sort of similar wavelength for line of thought and uh, philosophy to that. They understand that some things need to be probed at. It's actually intriguing. Like, I have another point that I want to bring up in regards to Abigail and Raven, but I don't remember the conversation specifically that you were just talking about uh, in regards to Solarian culture, but remembering how Solarians are portrayed during the arc of Mass Effect, it occurs to me that in that particular case, there's a degree of privilege at work there, Mm. where Salarians might feel like secrets that are not theirs are fair game. Mm. And so therefore, they're interested in solving mysteries that are out there in the world, or that potentially belong to other races. But any secrets that the Solarians choose to keep are off limits. 
and therefore mm. should not be discussed or revealed. This is not to pin everything on the Solarians, of course. All the Council races, Solarians, Turians, and even the Asari have been keeping long-held secrets that are revealed over the course of all three games. But there's a big one in the third game that Commander Shepard comes into conflict with the Solarian Dalatress over that specifically came to mind during our original conversation. Yeah. So, yeah, I and, and I can definitely see that, like, that's on a larger scale, that's on a societal scale, that's on a Solarian slash British Empire scale, one might say, or mm. even America or Canada, with like mass graves of children literally being dug up recently in regards to how both of our cultures treated indigenous First Nations peoples and everything like that. Mm. But I also get the feeling like that could be applied to Raven and Abigail as well. Yes. They want to solve the mysteries of other people, but aren't necessarily comfortable about going over their own secrets, their own past. And mm. now this conversation shows that they're willing to 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 ask and receive those questions from each other. And mm. the idea that actually came to mind was just as Abigail and Frau were sparring, this mm. is a verbal equivalent of Raven and Abigail verbally sparring with each other. It's not an actual fight because there are no stakes, but it's definitely a conversation that one could attach a sparring metaphor to. Yeah, you are right. This is not just about them and what they have shared between just the two of them, because being around other people, each going on their own journeys, getting to know what road they've traveled to get to this point, it could very easily just be background noise to the disinterested associate but we know that this group has taken an active interest in learning and noting what they see around them they're highly inquisitive individuals and that includes the remarkable people that they have met and brought into their group along the way just as abby instigated the group bonding moment by asking all who have experienced comparable losses to raise their hands Knowing others has prompted and facilitated the acknowledgement of things that we ought to know and accept about ourselves and how the road up to here has really affected things. You're absolutely right that this conversation is exactly where it should be, right when they're on the cusp of the goal that they have set themselves out for. It's a time for reflecting on the where they've been when they don't know what's going to come next or what it could potentially cost along the way. Mm. And now we're going to talk about some of those costs, because finally we're at the southern door, and it's appropriate that it's the voice of Jeremy that tells the bulk of this story, as it has always mattered the most to him to travel to a new world. There is something amusing in that Jeremy relates to how he is scared that the Wendigo will descend as they cross the threshold, and yet at that moment he doesn't seem scared at all. He's more curious than anything else, and as the story continues, one wonders if a little more fear and a little less curiosity might have served him better. 
Oh, hey, Greg, we've got a chapter called Through the Southern Door. You know, we finally got a chapter title that, you know, virtually replicates our namesake. That's quite fun, right? Boy, I sure do hope we've got a special uplifting time ahead of us to mark the occasion. One nightmarish descent later. Oh dear. Well, we are having one or two little problems at the moment. It won't be too long before we're with tonight's episode of Tour of Duty. Despite the disarmingly effective job that Alex does with the narration and audio design to make this destination truly unsettling, we can't help but echo Jeremy's disposition at the prospect of seeing all of this dreadful scene and its insidious truths. We want to understand the Wendigo more, and we can't help but lean our heads in further and further, taking each new terrible detail with a grim fascination. Horror is a genre that I know you can struggle with, Greg, so this response may or may not be one that you necessarily share, but something that often draws both myself and Sarah into horror stories, even ones that can wind up being pretty mediocre or like resolving in an unsatisfying way is the sense of a compelling mystery to learn with them more often than not horror relies on evoking something unknown or ineffable and while the conclusion can often be one that leaves some of the details unsaid and unclarified we nevertheless find the exploration of horror themes and concepts cathartic in that it is the exploration of things that are off-putting but despite or maybe because of this are infinitely compelling we want to turn our head towards the thing that provokes us to look away so you're absolutely right that horror is a genre that i struggle with for various reasons because even horror media that i would argue is good can still be difficult to watch. Obviously, you already know that I was already turned around on being able to love and accept Let Them Go for what it is. Mm. And there are other pieces that borrow heavily from the horror spice, as Alex Mm -hmm. would say. One of my favorite movies that uses a good amount of horror spice is Pitch Black which Alex and Sharon just released a show on. There was a dramatic moment all the way back when I first listened to Let Them Go that reminded me of that very movie. And I think as a result of enjoying Let Them Go as much as I did, I've gone on to watch a few other influential gothic movies that are well-loved. I've even been challenged by Alex and a few other members of the School of Movies Discord to watch a curated list of horror movies. And I may go on to share my thoughts on them in this very podcast. But getting back to the topic, because horror is a spice, I would go on to add that sometimes you only need a bit of it in the right place, which is part of what our discussion on Chapter 30 will get into. I am absolutely as fond of a good mystery as you are, 
And what it comes down for me is what price am I expected to pay following along in this mystery? And as you say, does it end up being worth that cost? Mm, There are definitely some pieces of media that I want to eventually watch, like The Babadook. Potentially, I want to finally see Wes Craven's new Nightmare, because there's a strong meta aspect in there. Mm. But because it's a Freddy Krueger movie, there is definitely going to be some gory bits. So I'm not entirely sure if I'd be able to get through all of that and all Mm. the screaming and the fear that so often comes in with that specific type of horror movie. The slasher moniker is aptly named, I think, Mm. for many of those films. Yeah, exactly. Don't know if I've watched uh, much beyond the first one and only know the majority of the others by reputation. So I don't know how that one sort of necessarily compares gore factor wise in comparison to like everything else. But yeah, I I think that's a fair one to feel cautious and treating it with a certain amount of distance and Mm. preparation before you jump in half cocked. I will add that. Because there are a bunch of horror properties out there, or movies that are beloved, or at the very least are very popular, just because I don't necessarily want to watch them, doesn't mean that I'm not curious about them. Sometimes, in a grim fascination kind of way, Mm. I have perused the Wikipedia entry, entries, I should say, for most of the Saw films. Because I was curious about some of the story aspects of what I had heard about those movies, but definitely did not want to go through the torture porn aspect of Mm. those movies. Reading them was enough to know that, okay, I've probably gotten out of this from reading the Wikipedia entries anything that I would have been curious about. I definitely Mm. do not need to experience these movies in order to get, there's nothing further that I can get out of it from actually watching it. And in fact, the YouTube algorithm recently recommended to me a video from Crack.com of someone explaining the plot of all the Saw movies. I won't get into it because I'm already off topic, but the video convinced me just how dumb as rocks a lot of the plot of those movies are. And if you're curious, I'll leave a link in the show notes. There are definitely movies out there where I read more about them, either people that stuff have written or talked about it, and decided this is something that I might be able to get more out of by experiencing it. And to be perfectly honest, that's why when I listen to the Candy Men show, Alex and Sharon and I think it was Karu and Debbie that were on that show with them, because I know that they love horror properties, After listening to them discuss the entirety of the 1992 movie, I was like, this sounds intriguing enough that I'm going to stop here, save the rest of the podcast, watch the Nia DaCosta movie, and then listen to the rest of the podcast, because I don't think I actually want to be spoiled on this. I want Mm -hmm. to see what it is they're going to be talking about before I listen to their talking points. Yeah. And that was was a good decision on my part. I would agree. I think that both Candy and at the risk of us going down on a tangent that will result in even more space beyond the window, I will just keep it at both Candy Men films are 
really quite different. And, you know, the first one is, I think, in a lot of ways, not quite some of the people involved in its creation didn't really have a hooked handle on what they were building and what they were creating with it. It still manages to do some really operatic and very sort of urban gothic atmosphere with it, even if it's sort of scratching at the deeper like political point that is really there in the text and subtext of it. Though I think that everyone involved in it, Tony Todd and uh, mm. several other people, have become increasingly aware of its legacy since then. See, that's the thing, is that that's part of what got me into it. The Shaws referenced the additional content, the interviews, especially the ones that involved both Clive Barker and Tony Todd, <laughs> and them commenting on how Todd was very tapped into what this meant to the, to the African-American culture that embraced it, and mm. Clive Barker just didn't get it. So at one point, Todd is just sort of rolling his eyes at how much Clive Berger doesn't understand ostensibly the work that he helped create, or at the very mm. least doesn't understand what Todd is saying about it um, mm. in relation to race relations. And that's really, if Nina DaCosta's movie is tapping into that, th I need to immerse myself in that Please. And that's I think that's totally what the sort of standing point of those two films is, is that you have this thing that exists in the past that is in some ways a sort of imperfect version of itself. But it exists as it is. And it's OK for it to leave some stuff on the table that another film then picks up and really makes itself about that from the core Mm -hmm. And we get to sort of move forward with that while not like dismissing everything of that old one. It's just like they are able to exist side by side with another. I prefer the new one, but it's right and proper that we have that. I think it's mm -hmm. uh, like it really lends to the effectiveness of the second one, having that first one be there. And yeah, well, yeah, it's it's a yeah. it's a foundational mm. building block. Like yeah. you would you don't need to have seen the previous movie because they relate to you all the matters of import from mm. that. It gives you all the exposition you need in order to have a greater understanding of what's going on in there. But mm. the new movie would not exist if someone didn't Could look not. at the previous movie and say, no. there's stuff that we can unpack. Like, and it benefits because it is, especially with the theme of, there being this story from long ago that is not necessarily right there at the surface, but is in the background mm. because that's how the film is emerging into the present climate. It's mm -hmm. and we have a Wendigo outside who is agreeing with me. We have gone on this Candyman tangent for what I believe is the second time. So mm -hmm. I shall retreat us back and say Steamheart, 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 and that should uh, summon it back on into our lives. Here it is. Let's talk about it. <laughs> okay. I think the Wendigo was here because we like had stopped talking about his book. Yeah. Okay. That, that that's a fair point. We should definitely get back on track. But in an overarching theme because it's something we've already discussed as being a part of Steamheart. I love it whenever a piece of media 
interrogates the importance of stories inside mm. its own story. And I'm, I'm always ab- for that shit. And that's absolutely what Nia DaCosta's film does. I don't mm-hmm. think that we're necessarily going to do a Beyond the Wind Door on Candyman, because, or rather on the new film, because I think that I don't necessarily know that I have more to say about it, and I don't have enough personal context the way the Shaws or the way Carew and Debbie do. Let let us focus on the things that we feel like we can say something new about, yeah. including New Century. But before we proceed, there is something on topic with New Century that can be mined from our long, off-topic discussion. Over the last three years, we've talked a lot about the early books of the series, mentioning in passing how the Cartographer's Handbook, Secret Rooms, Tiger's Eye, Arlington, and Steamheart were all going to be one book. We have discussed our complex feelings about that first book, and how well it works in comparison to the others. But the simple truth is this. Whatever weaknesses the Cartographer's Handbook may have, it is nonetheless the foundation for everything that came after. Had Alex not found an audience with that first story, much like the original 1992 Clive Barker movie, how would there be new stories to base off of it? Indeed, the further we have gone in our retrospective of Steamheart, the more pieces we see from that original novel, including one character we will soon say a final farewell to. The strength of that original story proves the value of this world, and has allowed Alex to hone his craft and gather his companions so that this larger epic tale might come to life, and further allow new stories to come. And so, as we see the end of Phase 1 on the horizon, I look back to the beginning and offer a salute to the handbook, its world, and its characters. For everything they have given us, and for everything New Century will continue to give. That said, on with our show. Chapter 30. There is something weirdly apropos in having Miguel lead them into this new world. The one we eventually know has a name. Saitash. I had forgotten just how dangerous Rama was, due to the fact that Hrau and her people lived and flourished there. I know it's a thing that the jungle has very dangerous flora in addition to fauna, Mm. but because Prowl was our introduction to that world and protected Miguel from its dangers, it didn't feel like Saitash does to us now. Prowl and her people lived and flourished there, and the greatest danger in that story was not from the jungle, but from other cats. Mm. Miguel survived the wilds of one world and carries that experience with him into another, so in tune with his surroundings, that he sees this flora-laden world as something even more dangerous than Rama, calling it wrong. Mm. We see all too soon just how right he is. And there is something altogether terrifying in a world where the flora itself wants to consume you. I think you're so right that it is really important that Miguel is present in this scenario. In a lot of ways, you could question whether a group of soldiers would say, like, okay, let's, like, 
take the kid with the youngest member present with us through to this alien world. But as everyone acknowledges, this kid has like the most experience in precisely this. Like it's actually thinking about it, it's a very newt in aliens vibe. This little girl survived longer than that with no weapons and no training. Right? Yeah, that's that's completely true. The comparisons keep coming. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Miguel, at least, has the training that Hrau has provided. And in some ways, is actually more equipped to enter this world than Hrau is. Because Mm. when you picture how big a 10-foot tiger is, I think she... Oh, she would have been screwed here. I mean, she would have been in more danger from, like, plant life touching her which yeah. we already know could have been deadly in and of itself so the fact that mm. gel is small actually works in his favor yeah he has the best chance there and you know we saw miguel encounter and survive a number of scenarios in rama you know he confronted wild animals that are just doing their natural thing of seeking prey he also encountered wild animals that were being weaponized by the conscious force of a shaman who had his own agenda he also traversed the physical landscape of a jungle and one from another world he even encountered british lions so you know (laughs) the worst monster (laughs) yeah so there's plenty that he's come to like confront and come through on the other end of it and with Krause training and you know more somberly he went past the point at which he had to take a life in order to survive Miguel is pretty much as fully rounded in his experiences in a survival situation as you could reasonably ask anyone to go through, let alone someone of his age. And yet, to see that even he is thrown off balance by what they are confronted with is saying an awful lot. The fact that much of what goes wrong comes down to the plant life and the vegetation of Saitash operating in this alien and disconcerting way that could not have been predicted is highly effective. Jeremy mentions in the following chapter that if the Wendigo infection was some natural aspect of another world that was being weaponized by a consciousness that they could ascribe some sort of human influence to in the sort of same way that we have just compared like hacker with his control of animals to in rama then he could wrap his head around that in some way but the truth of it is that this is the result of a highly volatile and lethal vegetation that is indifferent to any carnage that its presence inflicts on what it comes into contact with whether of its own world or not it's quite horrifying. It indicates that there is a complete lack of control for the characters that we have been following thus far. It's as if the greatest calamity to ever befall this entire world and the human species wasn't the result of something that was actively waging war against humanity as a result of the species' actions, but is just a complete, utter fluke. It was an interdimensional biological coincidence and that coincidence spiraled into the devastation that we're familiar with what toby is discussing here incorporates ideas that have real world relevance like the introductions of invasive species to a biosphere or the destruction that can result from human interference hell one of the things we've learned about plagues 
is that they specifically result from sickness jumping from animals to humans, which was only possible because animal domestication resulted in the proximity of lots of animals to lots of humans. Unintended consequences is also explored a great deal in fiction, such as Weyland Yutani wanting to weaponize xenomorphs, or John Hammond wanting to create dinosaurs for his park. But what also comes to mind is the chaos inherent to existing in the world. In the old days, we tried to explain the things we did not understand as attributable to gods. And even today in the modern age, there are many who try to use faith in a god as a way to deal with tragedy and death. But other times, people associate it with conspiracy, suggesting that a horrible thing that happened it was the result of shadowy government cabals, or sinister rich men, or even segments of society that people hate and fear. All of this speaks to the way humans would rather bad things happening be explained as catastrophe with intent, rather than catastrophe by accident. Here, the answer would seem to be very straightforward and explainable by science and logic. But having said that, understanding what happened does not make it less dangerous or less terrifying. In this particular case, the situation of Saitash is more like something that's hitting our human protagonist below the belt. Yeah. Because it's danger coming from a direction that we don't expect it. You're right that it is also one ecosystem interacting with another ecosystem and resulting in something neither ecosystem could have come up with alone and that's a horrifying aspect all on its own even apart from the fact that Saitash interacting with humans results in wendigo Saitash is plenty deadly on its own merit yeah a portion of the group dies to other stuff not turning into wendigo in in video game terms it's as if like they were playing a level of the original Mario and they were so preoccupied with the thought of Goombas and Koopas in front of them that they failed to take into account the piranha plant coming <laughs> out of their pipe. And because why would piranha plant why would plants come out of pipes? There's so many questions to this. Like this <laughs> this makes so little sense to my initial observations, and I'm dead. Yeah. <laughs> Oh my god. Could you imagine just like completely disrupting all tension and horror and atmosphere of this chapter by just like having the occasional Mario sound effects of do 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 There's also tales unexpected with a sort of British tales unexpected. There's always a push at the end of the tale. Remember that on telly? Push at the end of the tale. There we go along there. But no, you say a bloke, and he's, he's, he has a relationship with a, a woman, and uh, or his wife, or whatever, and he thinks his wife is seeing someone else. So he he goes home from work early, and uh, she's at home, and, and he goes home at four o'clock, and he opens the front door, and a pig eats him. <laughs> totally unexpected, isn't it? Continuing this conversation, there is something subversive in the darkest way as this chapter moves towards its conclusion. Jeremy is finally here, and doesn't want to have to turn back, like he has been forced to so many times before. 
we are not going to lay blame and say what happens next is in any way his fault. Side note, when you have a name like Murphy, you're just asking to have something go wrong. <laughs> I mean, I should chuckle at the observation of the fitting name, but, you know, we are in Saitash. Yeah, exactly. Here, the world itself, as we were just discussing, shows everyone what a bad idea it was to come here. As hmm. our team starts succumbing to this world. While there are multiple moments in movies that can be referenced to Henry Jackson's assertion, Get us the fuck out of here. The moment that comes closest to mind is the point in Event Horizon where it's clear what befell the old crew, and Captain Miller flatly asserts, We're leaving. Alternatively, there's a different moment from Aliens, put a bullet in the jar, that I'm kind of embarrassed I didn't think of at the time. We are <laughs> if you ever get round to incorporating some of Jordan Peele's films into your uh, limited horror repertoire, Greg, then his latest film, Nope, certainly has, as the title would suggest, several invoking the film title moments that just hit close to home where someone opens a door looks up goes back into the car closes the door and just says nope <laughs> like yep <laughs> yeah honestly i suspected the movie was going to have that vibe from the second we just found out the name of the film and i'm just like what comes to mind is that clip from uh die hard three where Samuel L. Jackson is talking to Bruce Willis. Hey, it's Bruce Willis again. And he's like... <laughs> he just won't leave us alone. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But he's like facing off against Bruce Willis in regards to Jeremy Irons' character and says, That's a white man with white problems. You deal with it. <laughs> oh, boy. I... From here, we went on an extended discussion of the Die Hard films, but we've already had too many digressions in this episode. So if you really want to know what we talked about, you can find out in one of the outtakes episodes. Well then, let us return to a good day to steam hot. <laughs> Proceed, sir, with your notes. This is a school of horror that is reminiscent to the xenomorph in Aliens, because Greg and I can only remember so many films, and we will just re reference them till we're blue in the face. In that film, the xenomorphs and aliens take cues from the world of insects, which is this whole mode of vicious existence steeped in a biological arms race that takes place alongside us, but goes largely unnoticed by the majority of people. Instead of insects, however, we are entering the similarly unnerving world of the darkest corners of plants and all of its infinite variations. As a side note on this uh, whole subject area, I would like to take this moment to applaud and celebrate the fact that this is the first episode of Through the Wind Door that we are recording, where my wife, Sarah Skeels Youngest, has become Dr. Sarah Skeels, a title so cool that I genuinely can't believe it exists and is like not an exaggeration, it's her official title. <laughs> and I have a Doctor of Zoology in the house at all times, how cool is that? Round of applause. She is, she is 
blushing and bowing at the table and I am going to stop embarrassing her. But I can't. You're Dr. Sarah Skeels. Like, come on. It, it's alliterative and everything. You're a comic book character. You're like, you're one of those scientists in a film who inexplicably is an expert of all things because you're a doctor. You must know all the things. In a world where plant life has gone mad, where fish have elephant noses, and hamsters mistake a camera for a bit of egg and attack it, one woman can make sense of it all. Did someone call for a doctor? Sarah Skeels Jungius is the woman with all the skills. I'm going to try and do my wife proud while butchering her life's work of uh, exploring the world of biology and talk about the world of plants. So if you've ever watched Green Planet with David Attenborough, and I highly recommend it, you'll have seen an effective attempt at recreating and conveying existence from a plant's perspective. For humans, we always take plants to be, a, you know, they're relatively static things when viewed from our perspective. But what it does through time-lapse photography and a really uh, effective edit is that it demonstrates the timescale of plants, that they are ever so slowly, constantly moving and are certainly alive. That patient, unstoppable movement has a certain insidiousness in and of itself. But when you combine that with some of the more unnervingly hostile or even morbid evolutionary results that you can see in some of the plants, it really takes that mode of horror to another level. Mm. There's two examples that come to mind. The first is, it's quite, it's quite a well-known one. It's called the Rafflesia, also known as the corpse flower. It's the world's biggest flower at one meter across, and it stinks like rotting flesh, hence its name. And it's also the inspiration for Vileplume from Pokemon. So if you take a look at a picture of a Rafflesia and Vileplume, you actually realize just how close they correlate. Sarah loves Vileplume, so uh, that's another thing she's happy that this... <laughs> is the conversation this is her she, her ears have poked up more of this than anything else so far so this is a good episode in my book wait um, do we we doesn't come up that often what jar do we what do we put in a jar if we bring up pokemon during the course of the uh god what do we even call the money in pokemon it's it just has this random sign it's like it's wait do we put uh, candies in a jar in a reference to pokemon go poke coins that the, that's the pokemon go thing so like uh, put a poke coin in the jar okay. but like the process that we see with the ape in the book of steamheart where the ape once it's infected it just slowly and steadily makes its way to be consumed by the plant that infected it with it. It's serious, and it makes me think of the Rafflesia because of, and I looked this up, so I hopefully am not uh, butchering any of the details, the scent of the rotting flesh that it emits is meant to draw in flies, and mm. some of those flies 
are meant to pollinate other Rafflesia. Like the the Rafflesia itself is also a parasitic plant. It mm-hmm. is. I think it sets its its roots into the trunk of a different host plant. And I think once a year it opens up in this huge display where the the flower petals even are described as having a leathery texture. Every detail about this plant is like terrifying. But in addition to using flies as a method of pollinating other Rafflesia, it will also trap some of the flies that get drawn into its cavernous center. And that whole concept just kind of gets under my skin. It really is just this idea of this plant that in a hidden corner of the planet we live on just has this mode of existence that seems almost perfectly designed to just pry at a number of things that we find uncanny and unsettling. The idea of just this decaying sense that we can't help but associate with death that it uses as its main mode of sustenance while still acting as a parasite on another plant. And yet all of this is done with complete indifference to us. It does this because in its evolution, it is the most effective way of existing. That is the stuff of nightmares. And if you want other examples of cool and horrifying plants, do watch Green Planet. There's one which I think a lot of people remember, which was the water lily one. Sarah was about to say me, but this was actually something I looked up earlier today to remind myself. There's this vine in a water lily where as it's coming up, it will rotate around with this spiky plant-like mace to bash and move aside all competing water lily plants. And then once it does that, it opens up this humongous water lily with this puffy, spiky rim that is there to just kind of push aside any and all. And it is just this like behemoth of a water lily. And if you think that I can say water lily enough times to take away from the threat and the horror of this thing, just look up Green Planet Water Lily and just see that in your dreams because uh, I have to and now you do too. I bring all of this up because that is the vibe that Saitash is dripping with. It's this sort of mode of existence that is actually here and we see around us, but we don't look at, we don't see, but nature just nevertheless creates it in and of itself without our influence, without our control. And that's what Jeremy is getting at when he says that if there was some sort of human conscious effort behind the existence of the Wendigos, then you could comprehend that or do something about it a bit more. Here, it's just out of our hands. Literally a force of nature, and not even a nature that is indigenous to our world. But that's the thing. It's like, it's not even indigenous to that world. Like, the Wendigo 
exist because two ecosystems that never should have collided with right, one Right, no, I'm the, sorry. Let, let, yeah. let, me, let me be more specific. Yeah. I'm saying that Saitash is terrifying enough on its own without yeah. even having created the Wendigo. Well, that's it. That's like that's what I mean to say is that like Saitash is just like you took a wrong turn in a Dark Souls game and then suddenly you're in an area and why is my poison meter filling up all of a sudden? And like, oh God, I don't have any items for this. Ah, like, except this time, like you can't go in there and do a sort of sprinting rush to pick up all your souls. It's horrifying. I haven't watched any Green Planet, but I've picked up enough along the way to understand that plants want to survive just like animals want to survive, just like we want to survive. But we're used to thinking about animals because they are more likely to be a danger to us in mm. general. And they've come up with their own defense mechanisms for fighting predators or surviving that can theoretically be a danger to us, like, say, porcupine quills or snake venom that are perfectly capable of harming us just as they are capable of harming any other living thing plants are the same way and they have different ways of responding to that sometimes just a case of here eat this delicious fruit don't harm me because mm. it can sacrifice the fruit and the fruit is also the way of propagating more plants like it because the mm. fruit is literally seeds mm. that will be shat out later on and now be in this very nice little fertilizer, which will help grow more plants. That's a defense mechanism, too. We just don't see it as being dangerous to us because, oh, yeah, that's delicious fruit that we can eat in order to sustain ourselves. And now we're like, you're a good plant. I want to keep you around so that you can make more delicious fruit for me. At the same time, there are plants that are being like, hmm, okay. I'm going to make myself poisonous so that you die if you eat me. And that's a way to preserve my integrity and not be eaten by predators because, well, not, excuse me, not predators in this case, but like literally herbivores that survive off the plant line. Uh, animals are going to learn not to eat or not mm. to eat any other plants like me. By and large, the modern human presumes that we can control the plant world. We get to decide what plants are useful and live, and what plants are not useful and can be removed or isolated. Animals can still present a serious danger to us because they react in real time to threats, rather than evolutionary time the way plants do. Therefore, plants are by and large considered easily guarded against simply by the dissemination of knowledge. We are not prepared for the idea of plants that can respond to us like predatory animals. No, because they just, they simply exist. On a different timescale, as you said. Yeah. And in, in, in a different active reality. Exactly. To, to humans or even to other animals. And this just in, I'm getting this from uh, my source. Another thing about plant life that like, we take for granted because we think of them in these static terms is that they can actually communicate with one another. Mm -hmm. There is this, there are whole systems that will actually, if something happens to one, there will be a response mechanism. Mm -hmm. And not even one that happens over a protracted time period. It can be quite immediate. That, that is the thing about plants is that we 
really do take them for granted, but they are some of the most adaptable and intricate things. Just as you believe you have this control over the environment, the vines have already wrapped around your edifice. And of course, Tobini mentioning that just makes me think of Theo Lee's ongoing complaints and war with her local kudzu vines. The thing that I always see is this thing that like it's so fragile and yet so powerful all at once and it's the sort of thing that makes them such a sort of worthy of preservation worthy of respect this is a complete well it's not a complete tangent it is so intricate to the subject matter of this because we are coming into contact here with something that we don't anticipate and don't respect and it costs them they go into it thinking this is a world of wendigo they don't go into it thinking let's be cautious of the plants and by the time they realize where they are they realize they're in the middle of a minefield uh, where the plant life around them can literally turn them into the enemy and now i am realizing what a mistake i have done because they're all around us greg since none of you can see what he was holding up to the camera, Toby was implying he was in danger from his houseplant, which in this case was a bonsai tree. Yes. I'm pretty sure the bonsai is not going to eat you. You're pretty sure, but can you confirm it? I mean, I, we, we could just like keep it sat there and see if it starts to consume you. All right. No. Uh, let, 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 let's not take the risk. Let's not take yeah, the risk. Yeah, okay, let's not take the risk. All right, all right. Sarah's on pretty good terms with them, so I think I should be all right. Oh, okay. So Sarah is basically your diplomatic liaison to the world of plants. Also behind that, uh, because uh, if you thought this uh, house was filled with animals, boy, let me tell you about our plants. We have a cheese plant here, which is one that has an excess of these holes, which mm. I... What are the holes there for? Sarah is about to... Yeah? You can't remember. Okay, that's fine. Greg, cut this out. Cut this out. No, 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 no. Are cool. <laughs> this is going to be this is going to be a new uh, sideshow through the plant door with Greg and Toby. It's with Sarah featuring Greg and Toby. <laughs> <laughs> with Doctor Skeels Jungius featuring yeah, with... Greg and Toby. Uh, okay, uh, Sarah is offering her hypothesis. Uh, she is doing the academic research. Definitely not using Google. Uh, she's, <laughs> but no, this is before she made this hypothesis before Google. For the record, is that she theorizes that these leaves have holes in them in order to allow sunlight to go through to the lower leaves, which actually oh. enables more sunlight coverage, even if they have to holes in some of the upper. To assist leaves. photosynthesis, okay. To assist photosynthesis, yes. Yeah, uh, she has confirmed that that is the reason. This is basically. Oh. Most conversations I have with Sarah where like, I think to myself, like, hey, why is this thing in nature like it? And, you know, it's like the equivalent of, you know, someone asking me, like, oh, have you seen this movie? It's like, no, I haven't seen all the movies. I just like have a like I'm doing film studies, but that doesn't mean I've seen all of them. Uh, but like Sarah will go one step further and she'll actually be able to say a working hypothesis on most things. Then she'll frantically Google it because she has 
this obsessive need to make sure that she is not spreading misinformation about everything. It's a very uh, strong uh, characteristic. And then she'll confirm that, yes, in fact, she does know her subject very well. Well, then I'll just keep in mind, if you and I ever have reason to discuss serial killers or aspects of morticians and death, then we definitely need to have our expert Maureen Foley on the show. That's a uh, hell of a specialism for her to have. I do know that she has gone through several documentaries, but, you know, I, I suppose there's some sort of cross-pollination there. Uh, pollination, anyway. Um, <laughs> ah, 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 ah. Aha! Plant jokes! Plant jokes. Through the green door. See, that's a better one. Yes, if we ever do discussions on plants, the name for the show will be Through the Green Door. With Dr. Sarah Skeels. It also allows water drain, uh, I have been told, and protects from wind. This is through the green door. We have like transitioned into it. Oh God, I don't know if this is going to be part of the main show or going to go into an outtake. I don't. <laughs> <laughs> Either's fine. Uh-huh. They're, they're all in there. You know what we'll do? We will use this portion of the show like one of the leaves with a hole in it and allow some of the content to drip through to pollinate things at the other end of the... I'm, I'm butchering this. Okay, uh, Greg, take us back. Keep the content because it's good, okay, okay. but like, take us back. <laughs> all right, all right. Well, thank you everyone for listening to the first episode of Through the Green Door with Dr. Skeels and special guests Greg Downing and Toby Skeels Jungius. Until next time, this is a piece of music from Green Planet, simply titled Rafflesia. <laughs> <laughs>